You are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Have we peaked yet? Well, the record COVID positive cases has surged to more than 6,000 across the state. This morning, we check in with East West Center epidemiologist Tim Brown, who warned us weeks ago to invest in a higher quality mask or to double mask and to pull back on high risk activities to prevent the spread of the coronavirus in its latest form. Brown considers the situation dire in light of the poor data reporting. This weekend, the state health department decided to drop reporting the positivity rate since it just can't keep up with tracking negative cases. Here's Brown. I think, you know, latest numbers would indicate we're still in an upward trend across the island. That's concerning at this point. Again, we've done nothing to try and throw any circuit breakers to slow this continued spread down. We're not seeing any changes to for example, requirements for safe access to Oahu or for safe travels, which clearly ought to be requiring boosters at this point. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm still concerned about just the general lack of response when we've obviously got a increasing epidemic on our hands. You know, I just looked uh, this weekend at the positivity rates uh, globally, and I saw the Philippines has, I think, a 46% rate uh, which is distressing, you know, but we aren't even tracking positivity rates anymore. Well, I think the problem we've got is that, once again, I think we've exceeded the capacity of our already rather sparsely supported Department of Health. And, I mean, we never really staffed up uh, DOH other than the contact tracing branches uh, during the COVID pandemic, even though it's been going on for two years at this point, I think. We clearly have not updated our data systems the way we should have. I would think that this kind of reporting will be almost automated at this point so that it wouldn't require extensive human intervention, at least to get the daily numbers out. But clearly there's you know, still a lot of challenges in terms of how the data systems are working, how they're linked to the labs, and what kind of additional work is needed basically to generate the daily numbers. So I think our data systems have not kept up with the epidemic either, and certainly Omicron has presented a huge surge that, you know, people would not have anticipated beforehand. So I think it's just challenged an already underfunded Department of Health in terms of dealing with it. But going back to the data, if we don't have good data, how can our policymakers make good policy and protect the public health? Well, I think that's the real challenge. And I think that you know, we've underinvested in data systems throughout this. I mean, the hospital data system is also problematic. Most of us still rely on numbers we're getting from Josh Green rather than, you know, any sort of systematic reporting. And that's not even done through DOH. You know, that's usually done through the hospital association. So, you know, I think there's a, a chronic lack of data here for interpreting the trends in the epidemic and knowing what's really going on. And I think that's a real challenge as we go forward. You know, it's one of the things that some of the former Biden administration people put out a couple of pieces a few weeks ago. I think it was in JAMA. And they were talking about what we need going forward and how we need to change our response. And one of those critical elements is better data systems, improved surveillance, better understanding of what's going on with the epidemic, both in terms of the epidemic itself, hospitalizations, deaths, All of this needs to be streamlined, turned into an actual data system that lets us really know what's happening. And I think that's been one of the the failings of the response here in Hawaii throughout the pandemic has been to improve our data systems the way they need to be improved. I just get the feeling like we're just, you know, in a MASH unit. You know, it's just triage and um, we're doing the best we can. We don't have those systems in place. We don't have enough of medical personnel, just the lag that we're seeing in so many areas it is a, a, a little bit alarming. You know, we we see what's going on in the schools. Anecdotally, I'm hearing stories, oh, folks are working late into the night because they're having to follow up with all the contact tracing, you know, within the school campus, you know, whether it's public schools or private schools, that, that people are just really being pushed to the limit. I think that's absolutely true. I think, like I say, we've never done anything really to staff up the Department of Health or the groups within DOE that would be responsible for dealing with uh, COVID cases. And I think it's showing now. And so I I would agree with your assessment that we're in a triage situation. You know, DOH has been pirating people from other parts basically to help in the COVID response, help with contact tracing, things like this, which has left other important public health responsibilities unfilled. And, you know, that shows up to some extent in Dr. Char's request for 
additional staffing going forward, although I think that's far too meager a request. I think a much larger request should have come in given what's going on with the pandemic. I think the other thing that we haven't been doing is we're not thinking about the future. We need to be putting a systematic structure in place that allows us to deal with this going forward. And that means we shouldn't be scrambling basically to, to build up our testing capacity. We should have that testing capacity already in place with the ability to surge it when necessary. We should do the same thing basically with other aspects of the epidemic. For example, dealing with contact tracing, dealing with testing and masking. We've done nothing, for example, to provide higher quality masks or to provide quality control on masks to people. And I think that's that's been a real issue, which with something like Omicron that is so transmissible, Having lower quality mask means the transmission still occurs. The mask is not as protective as, say, if people were using an N95 or a high quality mask. And so I think there are issues there that have allowed this community spread to continue like this. So I think we haven't done anything in a serious way on ventilation. And given that this is a respiratory pathogen and we expect other respiratory pathogens to be coming, including potentially a next variant of, of COVID-19, which I know people don't want to hear it, but the reality is we've had a new variant every five months for the last two years. So it's unrealistic not to expect that there will be another variant coming. We need to build up a resilient infrastructure that basically is prepared to deal with this going forward. So quality surveillance, access to masking, access to good testing and rapid testing. We need to set up direct links between that testing and the treatment systems because when these new treatments become available, right now they're in very short supply, for example, Paxlovid or uh, the one monoclonal that still works very effectively against Omicron. Uh, when those become available, people need to get into treatment with those immediately. If you wait five days, basically those treatments don't work any longer. So our testing needs to be linked directly into our treatment. And that is something that, frankly, our current health infrastructure, I don't believe, is truly prepared to do at least not to do it effectively. I mean, right now we're still hearing reports of people getting four and five day turnarounds on testing. Well, if they're getting that kind of a turnaround on testing, then basically you can't get them into treatment fast enough with these new drugs. And so I think there's, you know, a whole lot of issues that need to be dealt with in a systematic way. We need a systematic structure going forward and we basically need to prepare and expect that this will continue. I know people, you know, everybody now is thinking Omicron, oh, one and done. Well, I'm sorry. I don't believe it's going to be that way. We are going to see further variants. We are going to see continuation of this. And unless we set up a resilient system that's prepared to deal with that, we will basically be back in the same triage situation when the next variant comes out. You know, in the field of epidemiology, you know, we're in a situation where we have this tidal wave of cases. Uh, The department doesn't have the staff to be able to report the negative cases, and so we don't have any good sense of the positivity rate. Uh, And then the contact tracing, you know, obviously it's mission impossible. Uh, People are just so inundated, so now they're pushing those resources to the clusters in the schools, in the long-term care facilities. So what do you think of that strategy? I think it's what you do in a triage situation. It's not the position we should be in. I would have hoped that, you know, like I say, we would have built up a more systematic system. But there's I think there's been very little forward thinking in our response, both, you know, that's not true just in Hawaii. That's also true nationally. And even under the Biden administration, I don't think we've improved that very much. We're still acting very much in a reactive mode to COVID. We let COVID do something, then we decide, oh, how are we going to deal with this? And then we let COVID do something else, and so, oh, we hadn't thought about that. Well, that's the problem. We're not trying to think in a way that gets us ahead of the virus. We're always playing catch up. And what that means is when COVID throws us a curveball, like it did with Delta originally, and then it did again with Omicron, and suddenly it's more transmissible and it's out there everywhere, we're not prepared to deal with that because we've set up no systematic infrastructure. We've, given, we've done nothing to improve the quality of masking. We've done nothing to improve ventilation in public spaces. We've done nothing to improve our testing capacity or very limited things to do improve our testing capacity. I mean, you know, the current proposal of a billion rapid test in the United States. You know, sorry, that's three tests per person in the United States. And we're talking about a test that in the ideal world, people might even be using on a daily basis before they go to work to determine whether it's safe for them to go into the workplace or not. 
And so, you know, three tests per person in the United States is a drop in the bucket in terms of what the actual need may be. So we've done nothing basically to prepare for any of that. And I think that's the real problem we're facing right now. And so, you know, we've been warned the next couple of weeks could be rough. Uh, They're still surging. We haven't peaked yet, even though for a while there last week I thought we had. But it's just that the numbers weren't getting out so that, you know, we would get a better handle on what's really happening. Well, I think that's part of the problem. We don't have a clear picture of what the actual trend is now because of the challenges basically in doing the numbers. And clearly numbers are being revised, being changed over time and and a lot of that, you know, we don't understand. We don't know exactly why that's happening. So I agree with you. We don't have a good sense of the trend right now, although today's numbers would indicate that the trend is still upward. And, and on the hospitalizations as well, we don't have a clear picture of the hospitalizations. I mean, if you, you know, Josh Green is telling us they're leveling off, but at the same time, if I look at the, uh, the HHS hospital utilization data, our numbers are still going up. So I think there's, you know, that... That lack of quality data on hospitalizations, I think, is also an issue. And on top of that, you know, there's the whole question of vaccinated unvaccinated. Do not have that data clearly captured anywhere in our systems at this point. You know, it seems to be right now we're gathering that on an ad hoc basis, for example, when a contact tracer talks to somebody. But that should be part of the routine reporting. I mean, that should be asked, for example, at the test point. When a person is taking a test, they should be asked whether they've been vaccinated or not. So I think, you know, that that should become a routine part of our reporting so that we can pull that information out quite easily. So that's important in understanding the hospitalizations and understanding the deaths that are coming. And we're not seeing that data in a systematic way being produced. So at the very least, I guess, what would you advise the general public, you know, in the absence of, of, of a better reporting system and, and, and the staffing that, you know, we need at this time. Our numbers in the state are over 6,000 per day right now. We are seeing massive spread of Omicron. And I would advise the public, if you can work from home, work from home. Wear a high-quality mask. If you can't get a high-quality mask, double mask. Stay out of crowded spaces. You know, if we if we continue to be sloppy and careless in our prevention efforts, this will continue and we will end up with 40, 50 percent of the population infected. And that will have an effect in terms of deaths. It will have an effect in terms of especially our Kapuna, who basically even with vaccines are still vulnerable. So I think, that you know, the public basically needs to step up and basically do what's necessary to prevent this thing. You've been hearing from East West Center epidemiologist Tim Brown, who is calling on the governor to institute a booster shot for the Safe Travels program now and to add a test requirement as well. Support for HPR comes from the Sierra Club of Hawaii for 50 years working to help protect the island's water, air, and ecosystems. The Sierra Club of Hawaii receives support from the Kim Coco Fund for Justice, sierraclubhawaii.org. Hard right talk radio and podcasts have influence and reach. For their audiences, the January 6th insurrection was just the beginning. This show is about human agency. Action, 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 but your agency. There's nobody else to depend upon anymore. You're going to save yourself. And in saving yourself, you're going to save the country. What far-right radio and podcasts are telling Americans about their own democracy. I'm Megan Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mid-Pacific Institute's School of the Arts, offering intensive and immersive arts training, accepting applications for the 2022-2023 school year. Midpac.edu. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, 
kawa umuloka ulana umau ukahulabe uhavai Later in today's show, we'll be introducing you to Hawaii's tiniest astronauts, Hawaiian bobtail squids. These cephalopods can be found in shallow waters around the islands. They're mostly brown, with some iridescent green and blue spots, eight arms and two long tentacles. Even cooler, they carry their own light source. Like others of its genus, the Hawaiian bobtail squid has a specialized body cavity that is home to bioluminescent bacteria called Vibrio fisheri. These give off a concentrated light that acts as a kind of underwater flashlight built into the creature's body. The squids use the light as they hunt for their food at night and spend their days buried in sand in shallow coastal waters. These creatures and their resident bacteria are a classic example of a symbiotic relationship. Stay tuned to find out more about what happens to this symbiotic relationship in space. But first, for our backyard quiz, we want to know the bobtail squid's Hawaiian name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. Civil Beats Reality Check looks at the efforts to get info and help through to the Tongan community following the recent eruption of an underwater volcano. Reporter Thomas Heaton joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. So this story is a developing one. You know, you've been tracking this. What What is the latest that you're hearing? Yes, yeah, so it is, as you say, Catherine, a developing situation. Uh, late last night, early in the wee hours of the morning, actually, the government of Tonga released it, its first official statement um, regarding this uh, very serious issue. Uh, three people have been confirmed dead, um, a 50-year-old British woman, a 65-year-old female from Mango Island, and a 49-year-old male from Nomuka Island in the ha- in the um, Ha'apai, sorry Ha'apai uh, region of Tonga, which is in the central kind of belt of the islands. And you know it is hard to get info because the 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 uh, eruption took out communications uh, to the island. Yes, so communication internationally has been cut off. Uh, and I think that the the Tongan community here in Hawaii can attest to the difficulties of not being able to uh, get in contact with their families. Many that I've spoken to over the past 48 hours have told me stories about uh, being on the phone with their families when the actual uh, eruption happened and the lines being cut off. So there is obviously a lot of angst and fear in the community, but uh, communication is getting better. Uh, Thankfully, the Australian and New Zealand High Commissions have satellite communications, as does the University of South Pacific campus in Tongatapu, the most populous and main island of Tonga. Okay, so they're slowly figuring this out. Um, But you you were up uh, on the north shore of Oahu in Haula, right, Um, as, as the community there was rallying. Yes, yes. So the north shore of Oahu has a a strong and uh, relatively large um, population of uh, Tongans uh, of the diaspora. So the local Huyo Haula, uh, the kupuna, as part of the community organization, decided that they wanted to help in some way. So they usually hold these uh, thrift events where they uh, sell second-hand goods, um, 
And what happened was, instead of doing that, they said, the Tongan community, you are welcome to come, take anything that you need to, that you might want to be uh, to send home. So uh, there were, you know, a number from the community there who were collecting clothes for their nephews, nieces, uncles, aunties, mothers, fathers, um, and just collecting as much as they could to send off. And now I understand that they're trying to uh, organise crates and shipments to send to Tonga. Yeah, and the, the latest I saw was that the, they were still having issues with the runway, right? There's lots of ash, so you can't really get flights in and out there very easily now. Yes, yeah, so there's a big cleaning up effort on Tongatapu at the moment. Um, there's a lot of rubble all over the coastal roads and that kind of thing, but the level of ash is prohibitive in terms of being able to get aircraft on the ground. Uh, New Zealand uh, yesterday sent two ships to uh, Tonga to be able to deliver relief supplies uh, such as uh, water, which is the main uh, main priority at the moment, that one of the ships has a desalination plant as well, which can provide 70,000 litres per day. So there is a big effort there, um, but getting that runway cleared is extremely important, and I believe that that will be one of the main priorities for Tonga at the moment. I understand that the ash has uh, messed up the water system over there. Yes, yes. So um, in Tonga, a lot of uh, families rely on what they call sem tanks, essentially rainwater tanks that are made from cement and they filter the water. But from what I've been told, the, the level of ash and rubble that has rained from the air has essentially turned their water black. So some have said that maybe they might have to rely on coconuts for a while. Uh, others are also less affected, depending on what these systems are. But it's, it's a very perilous situation for them all, and particularly in the central belt of Ha'apai. Well, it, it's really nice to see you know, New Zealand um, uh, offer help uh, to their uh, neighbor there in, in a time of need. And, and you're from New Zealand, so you know, this is nothing new, right? You've seen this before. Yes, I mean, New Zealand is, is often quick to deploy uh, help, uh, but this situation, I, I can't remember anything in my memory of some something so hard in terms of that communication being cut off. You know, early flights to kind of surveil the area were essentially impossible because of the level of ash clouds. So this is a really unique one, and um, I think that the Tongan community is really trying to rally and do as much as they can to support their families. Well, we really appreciate uh, uh, your efforts in covering this, but thanks so much, Thomas. Thank you very much. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. Read his story online and look for updates on civilbeat.org. You know, that massive undersea volcanic eruption that hit the island of Tonga on Saturday was felt by several other countries with borders on the Pacific Ocean. Some news outlets reported it could be heard as far away as Alaska. Video of tsunami surges in Oregon and on Kauai have popped up on social media. The offices of Sequest Hawaii, a snorkeling tour company on the Big Island, was also impacted. It operates out of Keho Bay, just south of Kona. The Conversations, Russell Subiano called up its owner, Manu Powers, to get a better idea of the damage. During the 2011 tsunami, the building that Sequest was operating in was totally destroyed. So we went a couple of years without an office. And then we got this one about, goodness, five years ago. The structure is sound, thankfully, but pretty much everything inside is lost. Yeah, I saw the pictures that you posted Saturday morning on social yeah. media. I saw the damage to your office. I saw your retail space and your, your storage areas were flooded. I saw your countertop was on its side. I saw the picture of that ceramic yeah. mug that was embedded in the wooden shelving. And then your propane tank, <laughs> yeah. right, was on its side up. Yeah, we had back. a couple of those actually from the same set, this set of pottery. Yeah. And from here on out, I think I'm only going to be buying pottery for the retail store. Yeah. <laughs> because there were plates that held up. It was you know, amazing to me how well the pottery did. <laughs> um, but everything pretty much lost as far as inventory is concerned. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also gear and equipment, um, and that, you know, runs the gamut from 
uh, electronics, you know, iPads for digital waivers to GoPros that we rent out and use ourselves to the POS system and the telephone and the printer. And then, of course, the refrigerator that was on its side isn't working and the dishwasher and the washer and dryer and ice maker and so on and so forth. So we um, we pretty much lost everything that was inside the building. Um, we just can't take the chance with salt water and mold. And so if the water, if it, if it was above five feet, it was safe. Anything below that is gone. When you discovered the damage, was, was it something that you knew about heading over to the office or did you just show up Saturday morning and that's what you saw? Well, we, we had gotten a call about 4 a.m. from um, a friend of ours who lives in Keho Bay, and he said that he thought the office had sustained some damage. But it was funny because he was sort of nonchalant about it or, you know, and in, in his defense, you really couldn't tell outside of a couple of, you know, distinct markers that something had happened. So um, we started heading down. We got there at about 4.45 a.m., and when we got there, we saw the propane tank that had been ripped up and had been carried across the yard. And that's when we knew that something significant had happened. But you, again, it was hard to tell because everything was stuck behind the doors. So the water came through, picked up a couple of very large potted palms. They probably weigh about 150 to 200 pounds and carried them through the door, just kind of pushed this, you know, rolling door we have um, in. And then, of course, it just snapped back after the plants had gone inside and the chairs and, and the cart and so on and so forth. And so sloshing around in there, those things clearly did a lot of damage. It ripped the cabinets up from the ground. They were all bolted down. So it was kind of like a blender inside the storage, or excuse me, inside the office space and inside our gear storage area and staging area and so but you know outside of the closed doors you couldn't tell but as soon as we tried to open the doors and saw that we couldn't or felt the resistance we knew something was wrong and so the videos that you see you know we started walking in and it was a total disaster was there any damage to your boats do you moor your boats in the bay no, the boats are actually stored up the road a little ways. And so they were at a higher elevation, thank goodness. And so the boats were perfectly fine, which was really you know, a godsend because we were able to operate the next day. You know, not able to use our office space, obviously, but we were able to get the boats launched and um, begin business again. There's a lot of debris in the launch area in Keohoe. We're going to reach out to the state today about having it cleaned up. We've heard a lot of stories of people hitting their props and the bottoms of their boats and yeah. stuff, um, So, which isn't surprising. You know, some of our stuff was found way, way offshore. And so we've got like a missing table and missing, you know, tons of missing chairs. So we know all that stuff is in the ocean somewhere. It sounds like you guys got hit like as if it was an actual tsunami. Were any of your neighbors oh, yeah. the impacted <laughs> this in the same way? Or was it kind of focused on your guys' area? No, it, it seems to have primarily been us you know the Fairwinds is next to us I guess their their picnic table was moved and they had this sculpture of a honu and that was kind of pushed off and their rolling staircases were moved but other than that they were fine it was really us I think it was just the direction um, of the tsunami how it came into Keohoe Bay just kind of wrapped around the south side of the bay and focused all its attention and energy directly on us but you know this was a significant wave that came or set of waves and it, it surged all the way into the evening hours past dark. You know, the tide was dropping and raising by feet in, in minutes, but this was just as significant as any tsunami we've seen that was of, you know, note in Kona, the wave or excuse me, the water level in our office, there's this distinct line on the back wall the restrooms are in the back, and the water line was above the toilet. Wow. So we caught a lot of water in Keohoe Bay, and in particular in our office. So I think it was just a directional thing, a geographical thing, but this was a significant 
wave and we had no warning. There was no, you know, or set of waves, I should say, excuse me. We had no warning. There was no siren. You know, there was, we, we heard at what, what time was it that we got word that there might be a tsunami, but don't worry, it's going to be insignificant. That was at two o'clock in the morning. Beyond that, we knew nothing about it. If we had had that information and it was operating hours, we probably would have continued to go out like most companies did. And I've heard that in the news that a lot of tour companies went out because they were told it was going to be insignificant. This was not insignificant. This was substantial. Where are you at in the recovery process? You said that you were able to resume boat operations, but is this going to be like a few months to get your office back in shape? It will. Yeah, it's going to take at least a couple of months. I'm, I'm hoping we can get it down to one month. But right now, the office is only to be entered when you need to you know, get your equipment for your particular tour and head out. Um, we're not allowing guests in there or employees to spend any extended amount of time in there. We are in the process of disinfecting the walls. We've actually pulled the drywall out up to about two feet. And so we're going to have the walls disinfected. We've installed more humid dehumidifiers and fans than I can count. And we're just going to give it about five days to ensure that you know, no mold has an opportunity to grow so that the staff is safe, so that the guests are safe, and so that the building is safe for future use. So we're in the process right now of just dealing with inside the walls and trying to, where we can, dehydrate shelves, hopefully, you know, keep them from expanding or falling apart, just as much, you know, as much as possible, saving what furniture we can just so that we don't have to replace every single little thing. But we continue to throw items away that we see expanding over the last couple of days. We're trying to get an electrician in. All the electric wiring in the office area has to be replaced potentially throughout the building um, as far as the outlets that are, you know, at the lower level are concerned. So we know already about one-third of the building has to have the wiring replaced Next, um, we're going to determine whether the rest of the building has to have that done as well. I mean, they all got salt water in them, so it makes sense to replace all the outlets. But obviously, that comes at cost. So we're just trying to be as um, methodical about the process as possible. That was Manu Powers, one of the owners of Sequest Hawaii, talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about the damage sustained in their offices this weekend uh, from the tsunami surge. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We've got insights on a cosmic hit-and-run and the celestial aftermath. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence. Here is this week's Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet, and we are so grateful to have astronomer Christopher Phillips back as usual to guide us on our journey. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What are we doing this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week's Stargazers, Saturn will be visible in the western sky till around 7 p.m., with Jupiter also visible until it sets around 8.30 p.m. The moon this week is passing through its full moon phase, and so stargazing for those faint objects in the heavens is going to be very challenging indeed. And we have sort of a fun one, or maybe not if you're involved in it, uh, a cosmic hit and run you've got on your uh, storyline today. Yes, astronomers using instruments in Hawaii, the mainland, and Chile have observed the catastrophic aftermath of a cosmic hit and run. The victim is a young binary system known as Z Canis Majoris. The culprit is a small protostar, a star that is in the very early stages of forming, and it seems to have tore off an enormous quantity of material from Z Canis Majoris, material that would have possibly gone on to form planets. The result is an impressive stream of debris larger than our entire solar system spewing out into the galaxy. Sounds so frightening. <laughs> it certainly is, especially if you're in the <laughs> Canis Majoris. <laughs> 
And so did the protostar actually collide or just pass by? Well, you would think that such devastation would be the result of a direct collision. However, it was the protostar's impressive gravitational field that right. did the damage. This invisible force field tore the young star system apart as the protostar passed by. That's so heavy what gravity can do. And now it's uh, escaping off into the universe, no doubt. It is indeed. The protostar appears to be careening off into the depths of the Milky Way <laughs> galaxy. <laughs> no doubt causing more chaos if it encounters a similar planet-forming systems along the way. And then what happens to all the material that was stripped from the stars? Well, if it has sufficient escape velocity, the material will be flung out into the galaxy and end up who knows where. <laughs> but if it does not have sufficient velocity, it will most probably fall back in towards the two young stars, where it will be reconstituted into the planet-forming disk. One thing is for sure, though, there is a cosmic maniac on the loose out there, and who knows what <laughs> chaos it will cause next. Well, we hope you'll have the report for us and that that chaos will not be coming here. It's Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can catch Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the West Hawaii Exploration Academy Public Charter School. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, ferrarochoi.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we went looking for the Hawaiian name of a sea creature that has a body cavity where bioluminescent bacteria make their home. The built-in light source allows the bobtail squid to look for its food at night in shallow waters around the Hawaiian Islands. It points its light organ downward as it hunts and regulates the amount of light it gives out by controlling the amount of oxygen that goes into its light organ. Each morning it expels the bacteria and new bacteria come in to take their place by nightfall forming a symbiotic relationship. Last summer, scientists sent Hawaiian bobtail squid up on a rocket ship to study how space travel would impact this symbiotic relationship. Quite a long voyage for our local uh, cephalopods, which are known in the islands as muhe'e. And congrats to Cindy Lawrence of Kula. You are today's winner. So that's the answer to today's quiz. If you have an idea for our next one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. On the next Fresh Air, Brian Cox, one of the stars of the HBO satirical series Succession. He plays the patriarch of a family that owns a conglomerate which includes a conservative cable news network, a cruise line, and theme parks. Cox has written a new memoir that begins with nearly dying at birth. The drama on and off stage and screen continues from there. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to offering the community inspiration and learning through art and education. Learn more about membership programs at honolulumuseum.org slash join dash give. Next up, we have that story about a fish out of water, to, or to be more specific, a real squid in space. That's right. As you heard last summer, scientists sent over 100 Hawaiian bobtail squid up on a rocket ship and into orbit. Why? Well, that was our first question, too. The conversation Savannah Harriman pote spoke with lead researcher Jamie Foster about what became of Hawaii's littlest astronauts. So one of the projects or the big questions we have uh, and why we're even doing this research is we really want to understand how microbes communicate, interact with animal tissues. And that's been a focus of my career for 30 years, ever since I was a graduate student at the University of Hawaii. And the reason we've chosen the bobtail squid from Hawaii as, a, as the perfect model is because there's a single microbe that's living inside a special organ inside the squid that allows the squid to glow in the dark. 
And that unique relationship between a single bacterium and its host really gives you the freedom to do a lot of different experiments um, in the sense that if you're trying to understand what the bacterium is doing to the animal and how it's talking to you, you don't have to, you know, fuss through a thousands or hundreds of different species that are interacting like our bodies. We have thousands of different taxa and microbes interacting and communicating. And so that gets very noisy. And when you add stress to that conversation, that's when things can go a little haywire. And what we really want to do is protect astronauts as they work and live and, and also the future tourists. We have tourists going up now. And if they want to do long-term experiments or be up there for potentially months uh, or maybe even years, if you're talking about a trip to Mars, then we really need to know what stress does to that conversation between microbes and animals, because microbes, we rely on microbes for health. So that's kind of why we're sending them to space is because we're using the squid as a little model to really understand what is health in the space environment. How do you maintain um, a healthy relationship with a bacterium when you have uh, no gravity and potential radiation and all of these additional stressors that you've never seen as if you're a squid or a microbe have seen before living on Earth? I think for many people, just the notion of sending squid into space invites their imagination in so many ways. What kind of red tape is involved in getting something or formulating an experiment in space? It definitely took me a couple years in order to get the funding. Actually, maybe three years if you think of starting with the idea, getting it funded, getting a partner, what we call an implementation partner. They're the ones that know everything about the hardware. So you're working with their engineers to design your hardware and then ultimately finding a ride on a rocket and getting into space. And all of that will probably take you anywhere from two to three years, uh, depending on the complexity of your experiment. And squid, being an aquatic organism, uh, need a little bit more attention than, say, the average bacterium. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Do they have little astronaut helmets? Yes, we size them all with spacesuits. No, Um, they're in a, we we call it a little aquarium tank. They are, it's kind of a glorified um, uh, bag, but there's a special tank with pumps and to make sure they're getting enough oxygen, to make sure they're getting um, the water changes that they need as, as the microbes come in and as the Uh, experiment progresses. So they're kind of in a floating aquarium tank, for lack of a better term. That's actually what we call it, the aquarium. But it's soft, and it just it's a little malleable. And it doesn't have hard edges just to make things a little bit easier to pack into a little bit of flight hardware. And the squid are small, just to just to give you a, a sense of scale. They're about the size of a fruit fly when they're when they're born. So they are um, very tiny. And uh, so that's why we, it's also great to work with them because you can put a lot of them in these little space aquarium. And just so that I make sure that I'm clear on the basics, how long were the squid actually in space? Yeah, that was actually not as long as they were physically in space for a few weeks, but the actual experiment only took about 12 hours for the actual experiment, but then the launching and what we call activation Uh, of the experiment uh, only happened a few hours. So within a day, the whole experiment was over. Because one other advantage of using the Hawaiian bobtail squid is that the bacteria and the animals talk really fast. (laughs) There's a really fast conversation that's happening um, during the onset of the symbiosis. And so there are markers, like every two hours, you can, there's something new happening, almost every hour, really, there's something new happening that you can capture. As I mentioned before, you're kind of trying to capture all these RNA molecules like a snapshot in time by by taking and and taking these little looks into the molecular biology of the squid every hour practically during the onset of this relationship the symbiosis you know another thing to keep in mind when you're designing a space flight experiment keep it simple keep it very simple because you have a lot of variables that you can't control And so um, having a short timeline, making sure the squid were alive and healthy and happy, you know, during this, during the sitting on the launch pad kind of thing, we wanted to keep it short. So that's why the whole experiment really took less than a day. Um, But the animals were up there 
after the experiment ended um, uh, and they were um, brought back two weeks later. And this may be the, I don't know, this might yeah, be I know. an indelicate question, but. <laughs> I know this, I know what's coming. What, uh, how many of the, how many of the squid survived? Well, they all survived launch into space, but the experiment uh, itself, you know, ends with their sacrifice um, where they end up in a preservative. It's, it's called RNA later and it's a preserve. It's a salt solution really where you're preserving all their tissues so that you can get at these snapshots. So we're kind of flash freezing in a way these animals so that we can capture what's happening into their bodies. So I know that that's difficult for a lot of people to know that the animals didn't come back in one, you know, alive, but this is kind of why we do these experiments so that we can do them on, on uh, these little model systems so that we can really have a better handle of what's happening then to the people. And so, um, and also this is very translatable for earth-based, you know, earth-based health to really understand how stress alters and manipulates and, and changes your microbiome or the, the relationship between your microbes and animals is very relevant in everyday life. I think we're all feeling a lot more stressed these days. And so if we can understand how that's impacting the beneficial interactions between us and our microbes, I think we'll, we'll be able to be, uh, improve our, our diagnoses, our treatments and so forth. So a lot of this research is not just about keeping astronauts alive, but it's about keeping us healthy and happy here on earth as well. And what can you share about your results at this point? I don't know what the results are here. Here we are. Um, it's uh, almost, you know, seven months later. And what I can tell you, everything has been working beautifully because COVID has been a problem for us. Um, you know, uh, living in Florida, it's, it's a little bit risky. And uh, a couple of uh, the staff had have had the disease. So that's been slowing us down a little bit. But um, we've got the animals, we got them out, we, we were able to extract the, the key molecular molecules we were looking at what's called RNA. That's when if the microbe and the animal talk to each other, and they share a secret or share, a, a, a you know, hey, turn on this and turn on that. This is how you handle stress. Let me tell you, that's where you can get a lot of what we call mRNA, um, or genes that are expressed at any moment in time. So it's like taking a snapshot of your body at a moment in time and, and figuring out what's happening. And so we have been able to extract the RNA. Everything looks good quality. We've sequenced it. And now we're just doing the statistics on the analysis. I will say from uh, the ground study. So another aspect of spaceflight is you don't just kind of usually start off with a spaceflight. A lot of times what you do is you'll do what's called a ground experiment and you'll simulate uh, the microgravity environment using a series of uh, pieces of equipment. And so that can, you can test hypotheses and you can start to develop uh, ideas of how things are going to work, uh, you know, what the actual results might be. And what we found was the bacterium, the glow, this little luminescent bacterium that lives inside the squid was actually helping regulate the stress response of the squid. So when the squid was um, experiencing stress without the bacteria, the, the stress markers, we call it oxidative stress markers, they were very high and they stayed high. However, when the back, the little, uh, it's called Vibrio fisheri is the name of the bacterium. When this little glow in the dark bacterium caught inside the, the squid, it seemed to regulate, it was able to control. And so the squid did not experience this increase in oxidative stress response. Now that was our working theory that the bacterium was helping moderate or modulate the stress response of the host animal. And that's really important in a very stressful environment like the space environment. For many people, just, just the headline of this story, this idea that we're sending squid into space, feels so alien. But the idea that it would have or be part of an ongoing both scientific but also, I think, social conversation about our relationship to stress and how we treat it is, one, incredibly valuable, but also, I think, makes it feel more accessible to folks. Right. And, and I understand that it sounds like, okay, we're, we're just sending Noah's Ark up into space and we just happen to get to squid. You know, I know that people think that it might be wasteful or why the heck are we spending money on this? 
But everything that NASA really does or funds is it really has a what we call a translatable application to Earth. Um, it's, it, yes, the primary goal might be to improve the astronaut health, but there's always secondary applications. Um, I think of you know some of the early days studying how microbes survived hot spring environments. You know that was that discovery gave us uh, the ability to make copies of DNA. I mean, here was some scientists went into a hot spring environment to look at how the microbes were surviving at 100 degree or boiling water. And in the end, he found an enzyme called TAC polymerase, which it allows us, that gave us the power to sequence the human genome, to look, to make copies of DNA for the criminal justice system. So here was just kind of a strange little discovery of someone exploring an unknown or an unusual environment. And now that industry is a half a billion dollars a year. So you never know what you're going to find. And if you ask questions like, how are microbes dealing with stress and how are animals then responding to a stressed out microbe um, or a stressed out animal dealing with a stressed out microbe. Those are things that can definitely have real world applications. And that is always something that NASA and all of us who work in this industry are mindful of. That was Jamie Foster, professor of microbiology and cell science at the University of Florida, talking with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pope. They were chatting about what we can learn from the little Hawaiian bobtail squid's journey into space. And that's a wrap for us today. Tomorrow, we hear from the Hawaii Blood Bank as the American Red Cross has declared a national crisis because of the low blood supplies. Have you gotten your COVID booster yet? What's holding you back? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.